Hey, I'm John Harwood, host of CNBC's Speakeasy podcast. In this episode, I interview Senator Mark Warner of Virginia. We sat down over breakfast in Alexandria near his home to talk about the Trump-Russia investigation, the Republican tax bill, and his own presidential dreams. Senator, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So we're in Alexandria, near your house, mm-hmm. right? And you are somebody who made Washington your home long before you got elected to office. Talk about that. You went to college at George Washington. I went to college at George Washington, went to law school at Harvard, came back down, settled for a while in D.C., and then ultimately moved across the river, mm-hmm. always with the expectation, because I, I always had a little bit of politics in my blood, mm-hmm. thought I might move back to Connecticut when my, I'd gone to high school and my folks lived. Uh, but one thing led to another, and Alexandria and Old Town became home, mm-hmm. and I love it because it's, you know, I'm 20 minutes from the hill or from downtown D.C. 20 minutes door-to-door from your house to your house, office? To, the, to, to my office, mm-hmm. and uh, yet Alexandria's a great town because you can walk to things and yet still know a third of the people I see on the street. Now, I read a story about you that said your parents came down to visit you and they, you got them tickets to go to the White House, and you didn't get one for yourself because you said, I'm going to see the White House when I'm president. True? You know, that story has become so often repeated and how it got built into Wikipedia. I don't have exact memories of that, but I'll go with it. I could have imagined myself being that kind of over-the-top, potentially uh, ambitious when yeah. I was in, in the... Well, the and, and later... Uh, after you were governor, you're somebody who thought about running for president, came pretty close to it. Um, so since you have sized up the office, both as somebody who might occupy it and somebody who's worked with presidents, describe what you're seeing in the Oval Office from Donald Trump right now. Well, John, when I thought about it, I had promised my wife and kids that we'd try it for a year and then have this family discussion. I always remember the family discussion. I think we got through the appetizer at a dinner before I had two out of my three girls were, were crying and saying, please don't do this. Like, they, they were definitely sure I was going to win because we'd just come out of the governorship. Um, in Donald Trump, I, I see someone who I don't think was prepared for this, the office emotionally or obviously on an issue basis. Uh, I think he kind of, uh, I, I'm not sure he actually expected to win himself. And unfortunately, I think we're seeing in so many ways that lack of preparation and candidly, the lack of seriousness. I mean, one of the things that impressed me about Barack Obama when I met him and he was thinking about running was a statement he made. He was over at my house and he said, you know, what he feared the most was not losing. He said, got a pretty good life, but he was appropriately, I think, both respectful and fearful of the responsibilities of taking on the office. You get no sense from Mr. Trump that he is at all awed by the responsibilities of the office or, in that matter, respectful of the responsibilities of the office. And I think, uh, unfortunately, in many ways, our country's paid the price of that. Your colleague, Senator Corker, um, has said publicly that he is concerned, worried um, about Donald Trump as commander-in-chief. Are you worried about that, too? 
scare you? I'm worried about someone who is commander-in-chief who does not seem to acknowledge or listen to advisors who I think bring more facts to the table. I'm concerned about a commander-in-chief who seems to undermine diplomacy writ large and then his actual Secretary of State is when he's deployed, for example, on a mission to China vis-a-vis -vis, um, North Korea. I'm, I'm concerned by a president who um, seems to lack the, the empathy that part of his job, whether he likes it or not, is at moments of crisis to try to bring the nation together rather than the kind of you know, what I thought was one of the low days of his presidency, the outrageous comments he made, for example, after the tragedy in my state in Charlottesville. I, I don't think he, he gets the notion that this job is not a reality TV show where he's supposed to pummel whoever is the opposition of the day, but instead where he's supposed to bring, serve the country as a uniter, serve the country as a leader, serve the comfort of the country in many ways as a comforter in chief during moments of tragedy. So having been in the Senate for a number of years, uh, developed good working relationships with a number of your Republican colleagues, um, how do you evaluate the way your colleagues have reacted to Donald Trump? John, it's been one of the real disappointments. Um, I've spent years trying to build relationships. My view of politics is that it's half policy and half personal relationships and that you've got to earn each other's trust because at some point you've got to be willing to take some you know, incoming from your own team to show that willingness to kind of meet somebody halfway. Mm -hmm. And what I fear for, for my Republican colleagues is that history will is not going to judge them well in this moment where this president has done such outrageous things that they haven't been more willing to call him out. Now, we, we do see friends of mine like Bob Corker and Jeff Flake and others, but it seems to be the ones who are quitting who are still willing to call him out. I, I wish that they would, you know, they, they won, they get to run the government, uh, that's the way our system works, but I think they could have be running the government but at the same time distancing themselves from some of the more outrageous comments made by this president, comments that frankly are undermining our standing in the world. How do you think they feel about it? Uh, do, you, do you think your colleagues walk around uh, conflicted about their response to, to President Trump? Yes, I, I hear lots and lots of private comments, eye rolling, concern. Um, I think they at first were able to kind of you know, slough it off a bit, but then when the, the tweeting continues, when the kind of name calling with other foreign leaders, not just Kim Jong-un, mm -hmm. but other leaders around the world who we might have a disagreement with, you know, he, he, I think he's called out virtually every foreign leader in mm -hmm. the world, with the exception, of course, of Vladimir Putin, which uh, again raises a whole other set of, of, of issues. But I do think it, uh, there is uh, private consternation. 
I wish that private consternation could be was more vocal because at the end of the day I think it would reinforce to broad swaths of the country who are deeply disappointed with this president and I, you, know, you only need to point to the results in my state just recently or the result more recent results in Alabama that states that are traditionally Republican that you're seeing pushback against the kind of president's tone and rhetoric I think it would serve them well if they were willing to put some distance between them their positions in this president's. Now, your colleagues right now are all in on a tax bill. You serve on the Finance Committee. Um, you have a reputation as a business-oriented centrist. Setting aside all other considerations, when you look at this bill, as someone who comes out of the business world, is this going to have a major beneficial effect on economic growth? John, single worst piece of legislation since I've been there. And this is somebody who, as a business guy, as somebody who knows the numbers, spent years working on so-called Simpson-Bowles plan, you know, believes in the fundamental principles of tax reform, that we need a lower corporate rate to keep our country more competitive, that we need to bring back the literally trillions of dollars of profits that were caught overseas. But this process uh, we, we have here not only a process foul that this massive rewrite of the tax code has been done behind closed doors with only one team and if there's one thing we should learn from the last decade frankly from the Democrats own mistakes when they tried to pass health care or financial reform with just Democrats that you have no permanency when you only have one party buy into a solution but on top of the process fouls of having this done behind closed doors, it, it's been done in such a rapid way that I think it'll take a decade for tax lawyers, accountants, and others to undo some of the ticking time bombs, some of the secret deals that are put into this plan. And then on top of that, you have the basic premise that when you're the economy, and, and, and this is a result of both you know, Obama, Chair Yellen, and Mr. Trump, when the economy is running at near full, full steam, to go out and do a tax cut with borrowed money, and I would argue this will add north of $2 trillion mm -hmm. to the debt, not only the trillion and a half that's already been acknowledged, but another half trillion of kind of exploding goodies, benefits to people that expire five years mm -hmm. in when the, the tax cuts for the corporates are permanent. You, know, you add all this together, and uh, I don't think we're going to see the growth that's been projected. Matter of fact, Alan Greenspan, Republican-appointed Fed chair, has, has said these growth projections that are being bandied about are way beyond belief. And the notion that we're now on a, a trajectory with this additional debt, that the debt, total debt in our country, and 20 trillion we've already accumulated mm -hmm. from both political parties, the total debt, when you add on this, will basically debt to GDP will be as large as our overall economy. That is a recipe for disaster when we could have accomplished, if we'd done this in a bipartisan way, we could have brought corporate rates, maybe not to 20 or 21, but to 25. We could have put in place a minimal tax rate so that there's not the ability to game the system so that companies can put their intellectual property in one country and their factory in another and still avoid paying American taxes. There's a way to get this right. There's a reason when back in 1986, Ronald Reagan 
and the then majority Democrats did tax reform in a way that stood the test of time, mm -hmm. that they took literally months and allowed all of the good, the bad, the ugly in that bill to be aired out. Let me um, go back to the personal. And I noticed that you, like other uh, Democrats, have used the on Twitter the moniker tax scam for this bill. Um, independent analysis uh, has echoed a lot of the criticisms that you've talked about. So since these uh, your Republican colleagues are friends of yours, why are they doing it? Do, do, they, do they sincerely believe in this bill, or are there other reasons for it? I think there are a number that believe as kind of an article of faith that tax cuts will provide growth if you bring more profits to a business. Mm -hmm. And I believe they would be right if this was a period of high unemployment. I think history has shown high unemployment, you give a tax cut, you get a, you get a burst. Well, what I find so disheartening is, you know, we're looking the last five or six quarters at record high corporate tax profits. We've not seen that translate into investments in American dollar, American factories, or American workers. But, but just to go back, fun, fundamentally, you think they believe in this bill. I you think, don't think it's for I think donors there, or I think for there is a mix. partisan I think, gain? I think, or? I think there is a rush to get this done before Christmas, purely driven by a Trump request. I think many of them know that if they had built this on a bipartisan basis, if they'd allowed a little more time and a little more sunshine into the process, they would have a better product. Um, but I think the, the notion that we're going to see enormous growth, I'd simply point out, we've had record corporate profits the last number of quarters. Uh, two quarters ago, when with all these record corporate profits, 95% of all those profits were not spent reinvesting back in a business. 95% of those profits were spent on share buybacks and dividends, disproportionately benefiting folks like me or folks at the top who are massive shareholders, not the workers. For example, um, one of the things that would have made this much more palatable to me was if these companies are going to bring back their profits they generated in foreign countries at extraordinarily low rates, and the rate, the range is between 7 and 14 percent, why not say, fine company, bring it back, but part of the price of bringing it back at that low rate is you've got to put in place a meaningful training program, not for everybody, but for everybody in your company that makes less than $80,000 a year, because the one thing we know in a 21st century economy is no matter how skilled you are, you're going to have to continue to upgrade your skills because no job is going to last for 30 years the way my dad worked for the same company for 30 years. Unless you upskill, you're going to be left behind. And we could have had a bit of a quid pro quo with some of these companies. Bring, this, bring these dollars back, but at least show some investment in your own workforce. You are leading with Senator Burr of North Carolina the intelligence investigation into Russian interference. I would say that at a time that there's a tremendous amount of polarization that you're describing, some people look at your probe as an oasis where you have two guys who are in fact um, working across party lines in a uh, cooperative way um, to pursue this investigation. 
Is that cooperation living up to the hype? Do you think that Senator Burr and you are in fact on the same page, or does he want to slow you down, or uh, is, there, is there conflict that we're not seeing? Listen, there's always going to be pressure. There's pressure on me from a number of Democrats who presume the president is guilty and, you know, let's just get to that. There's pressure on Richard Burr from Republicans who say there's nothing here, you know, just get rid of this investigation. What we both committed to is we're going to follow the facts wherever it leads. The American Do you think people, he is withstanding the pressure I think that he's he is, getting? Yes, I think he is withstanding the pressure. You know, are, do we agree on everything? Absolutely not. But uh, I think we're a year into this. We've got a number of additional witnesses that we need to see. And, and I think that we have, on many of the issues, we have broad bipartisan consensus. Uh, we have absolute consensus. Um, some, the, the consensus that was already been reached by all of the leaders of the intelligence community that Russia massively intervened in our elections in a way to try to help Trump and hurt Clinton. We have complete agreement that Russia tried to intervene in 21 of our state's electoral systems, and we hope to have recommendations early next year so that our systems can be better protected. If not Russia in 2018, it could be China, it could be any other foreign adversary, and we need to be better protected. We also have, and I think this is important as well, um, my business was in the tech field. Uh, I'm a big supporter of tech companies, and I think the, you look at the, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Twitters, they're great, iconic American com companies. But they have created within this kind of social media ecosystem, there's a dark underbelly. And we've exposed how that underbelly was ex exploited by Russians using, you know, and the fake ads were just a small percent. Uh, of what was happening. What was a much greater use was fake accounts that had literally hundreds of thousands of followers and then some of those accounts promoted by a whole series of automated bots. I think we've shown that underbelly and through a little nudging and ex public exposure the companies are starting to change their practices. The big question which is you know, we, didn't, we do know there's never been a campaign in modern American history that has had this much contact with a foreign power both before the election and in the immediate aftermath. We do know the Russians were proffering you know, dirt on Clinton. Mm -hmm. What exactly was the reaction from the Trump campaign and campaign officials? I'm still reserving judgment until we see all of the principal figures uh, in front of the committee members themselves. Well, well speaking of that and, and of bipartisan cooperation, do you, um, you know, Donald Trump Jr. spent hours before your staff um, yesterday. Do you and Senator Burr agree that you all should, members should also interview Donald Trump Jr. and that it should be in public? We're going to have to work through the venue, that's mm -hmm. part of our discussion. The so chairman, no consensus The chairman on and I will work through that. But what we do agree on is that the vast majority of members of the committee, Democrat and Republican alike, you know, before they put their names on a final report, they're going to want to have a chance to talk to the principal figures, whether it's Donald Trump Jr., uh, Jared Kushner, uh, Mr. Cohen, who's one of Trump's pr uh, primary lawyers, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to put my name on a report where I've not had a chance 
to look these individuals in the eye what about the and president? ask them questions. On the president, I think there needs to be more nexus established. Um, we'll see where Special Prosecutor Mueller's investigation leads. Uh, but uh, like I said, we haven't agreed on everything, but on the vast majority of items, a year into this process, Richard Burr and I both agree that the more consensus conclusions we have, the better, because at the end of the day, if there is you know, two massively different versions of the truth, mm -hmm. a Democratic version, a Republican version, that does nothing to bind the country back together. Are you highly confident that you will end up with a unified uh, single report? I'm highly confident that on issues around electoral interference, around the tactics the Russians used in terms of helping one candidate hurting the other, around the question of how social media was used and abused, mm -hmm. that there will be broad bipartisan consensus. I think we'll also agree that you know, there is a huge amount of contact, there was a huge amount of contact between the Russians and officials from the Trump organization and campaign. You know, the, the nature of that contact and what may or may not have been exchanged, I think the, the jury is still out, and frankly, the jury's still out on my part because I've not had a, a chance to question some of these uh, principal, principal figures. Well, that, that, was, that was my next question, actually, because you've said in the past that on this issue of collusion, you've seen smoke, uh, but not fire. Uh, is that still the case? Uh, has it moved beyond that in your view? And as you sit here today, how much of this picture do you think you understand? I think more and more of this picture is coming into view. I think some of the comments that I made literally months ago, I would amend those comments in terms of where we stand today. Uh, you seen fire? I, I'm not going to jump to any of those final conclusions until we go through this whole process. Mm -hmm. I owe that, I owe that frankly to the administration to give them the benefit of the doubt until we get all the facts mm -hmm. in. Um, but I have been absolutely amazed at the number and extent of the contacts and the fact that it feels like almost every week or two we find a new line of inquiry. And what is clearly the case, uh, in the case of um, General Flynn, the president's national security advisor who he had to fire, this was an individual that was in a great deal of legal jeopardy. And dozens of potential counts against him, and a number of accounts potentially against his son. Do you the fact think the that he, the fact that he settled on pleading guilty to only one account says to me that uh, probably General Flynn has got a lot more of the story to tell. And since General Flynn was intimately involved in the campaign, and obviously one of the major contacts with the Russians throughout the transition, I think he's got very, very important facts to shed on this case. Do you believe the president knew he was reaching out to Ambassador Kislyak uh, in December about sanctions? I don't know. I do know that the president who has been obsessed about this investigation, the president who continues to call it fake news even though every one of his intelligence officials acknowledges this, even though every foreign leader acknowledges because we've seen similar Russian tactics take place in France, in the Netherlands. Increasingly, it was obvious that the, the Russians were trying to influence the, the so-called Brexit vote. Mm -hmm. um, what I, beyond whatever collusion between Trump 
and uh, the Russians happened or didn't happen. What I sometimes see is, feel like is from a more macro standpoint, uh, we're seeing the first, in effect, shots fired in the way 21st century warfare is going to be carried out. It will be carried out on the cyber front where you know, the Chinese may be stealing our OPM personal data or where the Russians are using misinformation and disinformation. And one of my great concerns is the president's failure to acknowledge this threat means that we have no whole of government approach on how we prevent it from happening again. Now, there are some people who have looked at how the president's responded and not accepted uh, some of the intelligence and said, well, that's about ego. That's about not wanting to accept uh, facts that would seem to call into question his, the legitimacy of his election victory. Is that what you think it is, or do you think that it is something else? John, I don't know. I, 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 for someone who claims, as he does, that there's no there there, if there is no there there, then he ought to be much more collaborative mm -hmm. on trying to get this investigation behind him. Instead, we have this constant um, actions, including firing, you know, again, you can't make some of this stuff up, firing the FBI director and then bragging about it to the Russian foreign minister where he calls America's senior law enforcement official a nut job and says this is going to take the pressure off of the so-called Russia thing when he is out on a regular basis you know, criticizing Bob Mueller and again let's step back for a moment we have an FBI director who was appointed by this president who has been a longtime contributor to Russia uh, to Republican candidates we have a deputy attorney general Rod Rosenstein who is a well-known Republican in senior official at the Justice Department. We had Jim Comey, who was a known Republican uh, for, for the, his whole time as FBI director. And we had Bob Mueller, who beyond being a well-respected law enforcement official uh, and Vietnam vet, was appointed by Republicans as head of the FBI director. So the whole leadership of the FBI and this investigation are all people with impeccable Republican credentials, yet this president is still disdainful of all of them. And I think any American, even somebody like myself who wants to give them the benefit of the doubt, says, you know, this seems a little weird. This is a little screwy. Um, how relevant, if relevant at all, uh, do you believe to your investigation and to Mueller's investigation are uh, financial uh, uh, interactions between the president, his family, and Russians. We all remember Donald Trump Jr. at one point said, disproportionate share of our assets uh, come from Russians. Uh, presidents had a, a long history of interaction with Deutsche Bank, and some people have wondered uh, about the nature of, of those interactions with respect to Russia. And, uh, how relevant are those facts to this picture? Those are not areas where the congressional inquiry has spent a lot of time because we've not established enough of a nexus. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe and hope that Bob Mueller is looking into this because we've... Do you think they're relevant? Well, I think they're relevant for the following reasons. One, uh, if we go back to what generated a lot of the, the smoke in the first place, mm -hmm. the dossier, um, I don't believe that a lot of the dossier has been 
disproven yet. I don't know if it's necessarily been proven, but to me that's one of the great mysteries of this whole episode. When you have something that explosive, you would think it would have been a higher priority of the United States government to either prove or disprove it. Disprove it if we want to remove the cloud over mm -hmm. this president. Prove it if, if it's, uh, because it would be so frightening if any parts of it are true. And so much of that dossier was built on the premise of these kind of financial ties. Secondarily, we have heard uh, a host of rumors, and, and, and rumors oftentimes coming from the press, of uh, the president's activities because he wasn't able to be banked by many of the American banks of banking through Deutsche Bank and that there were Russian dollars that were in some mirror trading and helping to, banks, uh, to back some of those Deutsche Bank loans. I don't know if true or not, but if they are true, what it says to me from a plain intelligence standpoint is it says that if there's an individual that has this much financial obligation or financial exposure to a series of oligarchs or figures that are close to Vladimir Putin, just from a plain counterintelligence standpoint, that would raise, uh, set off a lot of alarm bells because of the fear of potentially being compromised or having undue influence. So, you know, to, you know, for the president's own sake, uh, assuming that there's no there there, uh, I would hope uh, that Mueller or others would um, expose this uh, because if it's not true, we need to remove the cloud hanging over the president. Do you think that your inquiry and Mueller's in a time sense are moving on parallel tracks? Do you think that uh, your endpoints will be similar and when will those be? Well, I think we've actually interviewed more individuals than Prosecutor Mueller. Mm -hmm. uh, he's been pretty good about keeping things close to his vest and, and he obviously has tools that we don't have but the fact that he has already elicited two guilty pleas, one from Mr. Papadopoulos, one from General Flynn, and he's got two indictments uh, of the president's campaign manager and deputy campaign manager. Um, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Flynn, I believe there's he'll have many more stories to tell. Um, I hope he moves with all due deliberate speed. We wa I want to move with all due deliberate speed as well, but I think it's more important that we get this right and there's going to be question there's going to be questions about this investigation no matter what we end up with the more facts we can answer the more we can on people on both the left and right try to present the facts and let them draw their own do you think a year from now both of you guys will be done yes um, uh, just a couple things before I let you go uh, one is um, you mentioned the president's criticism of some of those Republican-appointed law enforcement officials. We're also seeing a drumbeat of criticism of the FBI, of Bob Mueller from conservative media, some people likening him, you know, the, the uh, U.S. Uh, law enforcement apparatus to the KGB, that sort of thing. Do you think a, a predicate is being laid for Bob Mueller to be fired? And if so, how would your Republican colleagues react to that? John, I, I I hope and pray that's not the case. Uh, when Bob Mueller was appointed, he was greeted with universal acclaim. When there were some of these rumors back in the fall, you know, a number of my Republican colleagues stepped up and said, you know, let's either pass legislation to protect him or 
it would be you know, wrong to fire him. As recently as this past week, we've had the Deputy Attorney General reaffirm his support for Mueller. The one case that was cited where there was an individual who expressed concern about uh, uh, Mr. Trump, my understanding is once that concern came to Mueller's light, he was fired. Um, what I think is a little bit unique is and unusual is you don't hear from Democrats saying, well, hold it, you had an FBI director that's appointed by Republicans, you've got a former FBI director that was a Republican, you've got a special prosecutor that's a Republican, you've got the deputy attorney general who's a Republican. You don't hear the Democrats all saying, well, that means all of these individuals work as suspect. I think it is, um, I think it's not fair, I think it's not right, I think it's frankly cheap shots when some of these Republican colleagues would question um, Mueller's integrity. Do and you? If, you, if you were to see uh, a firing, I think you, you would see a constitutional crisis. I, I was going to say, do you, do you see this whole situation, whether Mueller's fired or not, given the outcome of his investigation, is this whole thing going to end up in a constitutional crisis one way or the other? John, I think that is going to be up to what this president does or doesn't do. I mean, if this president allows this investigation to come to its conclusion and either bring charges or not, uh, then I think the system will have worked as our founders set up. If he ends up intervening midstream because it appears that Mueller is getting closer to either Mr. Trump or his family members, and uh, in an effort, or as he, as some of his lawyers recently said, what I thought was a novel, novel theory of the case that uh, because he's president, there's no way he can be colluding. And you know, cause some of these theories that uh, having gone to law school wouldn't have passed law school 101. Um, if they pull on one of these threads as a reason to fire Mueller, uh, I think it will be a it will be a political disaster for the president. And I believe it will be a constitutional crisis. Uh, in terms of what we've seen from the last two elections, Alabama uh, a few days ago, your home state of Virginia before that, what conclusions do you draw about how the country is reacting to the political moment that we're in? Again, I'd love to claim it was a suddenly, sudden resurgence of Democrats. I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. I think it's frankly discussed with the kind of tone and tenor that comes out of this White House. You know, whether it is his, um, you name the group, uh, who the president has not offended or made uh, inappropriate comments about, from his travel ban to the comments equating you know, Nazis, racists, and anti-Semites with folks in Charlottesville who were there to say, hey, we're not that kind of community, um, to the litany of tweets where anyone that he disagrees with uh, he calls out in usually the most kind of schoolyard childish tone um, this is not what people expect from our president and it doesn't matter Democrat or Republican and I think people are saying enough already even folks who supported Mr. Trump because they knew he was going to shake things up um, I think that their patience has run thin last question uh 30 years after you uh, uh, told your parents you were going to see the White House from the inside, uh, 
Have you given up that dream? Is that does that still exist in your mind? Is it something that you think about and might ultimately pursue? Where I think I can add the most value uh, in this kind of little struggles right now is one to get this investigation done right, get it done in a bipartisan fashion. And two, where I really hope to, where, and where I thought I was going to be spending most of my 2017, I didn't expect to be in the spy business, is that I frankly think both political parties are basically arguing about 20th century issues with a backwards look. Mm -hmm. I think the whole nature of our economy is fundamentally changing, the mm -hmm. nature of work is changing. I'd like to be out articulating a, some ideas about how do we create a new social contract that would have portable benefits? How do we take a mm -hmm. tax reform effort that would actually focus on investing in human capital? That sounds to me like a yes, that, that it is still alive. It would be, it would be a, a willingness to try to lay out an agenda, frankly, that maybe somebody else could pick up. You know, I don't get up every morning by any means with the kind of fire in the belly that I might have had a decade ago. Um, I do feel like I've had some frustrations with this job uh, in the past where I felt like I, I wasn't in the room. I do feel like now that I've kind of earned the spot where hopefully uh, I, I at least get a little bit listened to with friends on both sides of the aisle. And boy, oh boy, uh, getting this Russia investigation right, if I can get, that, get this right and do it in a bipartisan way, that'll be a good piece of work. Senator, thanks so much. John, thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening to this edition of Speakeasy. Subscribe on iTunes and leave us your feedback. This podcast is just getting started. We want to know who you'd like to hear from in 2018. Tweet me your suggestions at John J. Harwood. Until then, happy holidays and happy listening.